Yo, what's up? This is DJ Yellow from the world's most dangerous group. What's up? This is DOC, the Diggy Diggy motherfucking doc. Yo, 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 what's up? This is your boy, Z-Man. What up, dog? This is E-Shot. This is Jerry Heller, motherfucker. This your boy, DJ Paul K.O.L. for 360 Young Busy Bone. Vice World. This your man, Mastermind, the hell raise up. Yo, this is DJ Ready Red. What up, what up, what up? This is the real Rick Ross, and you're listening to me on the Murder Master Music Show. This is 
one of the weirdest times I've ever seen in my life. I thought, I won't say it topples when I was six years old, the day that Martin Luther King was killed in 68, but it's close. It's really, um, it's unprecedented. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, you got a lot of uh, stuff going on besides the actual virus, too. You know, like you're talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, police shootings left and right, kids right. being shot um, continuously, and mass uh, killing, people just pulling yeah. up, and they own one, two, three, four, five, and. You don't need nothing to have a gun that shoots a thousand clips. Are you kidding me? Military grade, yeah. Who needs that? You know, I mean, what are you planning on doing with that type of uh, weaponry? It's insanity, um, man. But and, and you know, you guys, well, you know, Easy NWA. You guys spoke about this thirty years ago. You promoted the uh, fuck the police record. Um, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that all these years later, the problem would still be here, um, the way it is? Well, hmm, that's actually an excellent question. Um, no, um, back then I could kind of understand because the whole crack epidemic and, you know, the wars with the gangs was really taking off. Um, I, I can kind of get it. You know, you can't, you know, treat everybody that's from a neighborhood that that's where their family was able to afford a house, call them a gang member, and that's the perspective that NWA took, you know. And something just happened where, you know, this, I would have never thought, let me put it like this, I would have never thought that we would go back to the racist ways of the 60s. And, you know, it started changing a little bit in the early 70s, but right around the mid-70s, something kind of mellowed out, evened out. Does that, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I think um, music brought a lot of people together, too, Um, especially hip-hop. It transcended across the globe um, and uh, brought a lot of people together. I know people in other countries who learned how to speak English from N.W.A. and Tupac and whoever else, you know. Um, Exactly. So that shows you the power of that type of unity. And I I never thought this would happen either to where... um, you know, there's almost a, a race war in this country on multiple fronts, um, and it's uh, it's insanity. You know, I have no idea why people are are even in that mindset in 2021. This is supposed to be the information age, right? Well, th- this is my theory on that. Um, no. Years ago, when we were in high school, early college years, you know, I graduated in '79. They were saying around this time, I think 10 years from now, that Latinos was going to be the dominant race in America. So 
now that we're coming up on that, and then we had, you know, the culture wars, Trump um, claiming it even more. Um, and instead of really looking at what's really going on, it's it's money. It's, you know, all the jobs were moved out of America. Um, like they say, it was either or coast. It was the West Coast or the East Coast, right? And the middle of the country was dying because all of those jobs was old, antiquated. They they wasn't they wasn't you know what I'm saying? So instead of us keeping a lot of stuff because America invented solar energy, but because of the oil, the dirty, you know what I'm saying, um energy, uh coal, oil and all of that stuff, you know, they lobbied against it. Because I remember all of this coming into the 70s and 79, it was talking about solar energy. But the oil lobbies and all of that stuff was so strong that they made it, you know, they, they boogeymaned it. And China was like, okay, they were ready. And then, you know, the unions did a whole bunch of damage as well. A lot of the unions was gotten uh, demolished in, in passe. And it was just, in other words, sometimes there's this perfect storm in life. And and it's really, we're being tricked. It's it's money, it's wealth. And, and I'm not just going to diss the Republicans, uh, so-called Republicans, right? I'm going to diss the Democrats, too, because look at Silicon Valley, you know, I'm in San Jose in 79, and San Jose State, the fall of 79, right? And those companies ain't helping. They, they're not, you know, kicking in with all of this homelessness and and all of that, you know, um, material greed. I mean, some of the the, um, the money that these companies are worth now is vulgar. It's vulgar, and especially now during this pandemic, right? We're now starting to see like the um Amazons and the Apples and everybody's on their phone. Everybody's ordering online, right? The delivery companies, a lot of these are tech companies and they're not helping. They gentrified the whole Bay Area where all the blacks had to move out of San Francisco and now they're going after Oakland and now they in Richmond and Vallejo and all those other places up north. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, it, there's. I was just saying, there's enough money um, to go around and feed every every child in this world several million times over, but you know, just a small percentage of, of uh, greedy individuals seem to hoard everything. They even drain uh, lakes for water and things like that. You know. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, anything to make a profit. If they could bottle air and sell it to you, they would. Um, well, they are bottling air. They're they faking it and calling it something else. Trust me. Like water, and they talk about the uh, California springs or what, spring water, whatever, right? California been in a drought for how many years? So where are you getting some water from? You're getting it straight out the tap and just... This is true. This is 100% true, Doug. My great-grandfather used to work for Hinkley and Schmidt, 
and he told uh, mm-hmm. he told my mother years and years ago that when they would run out, they would just fill the bottles up with the tap. That's what they were told to do. So no, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, deception has been around for a long, long time. I think Professor Griff uh, he put out a book not too long ago called The Oculus. You know, where you mm-hmm. can see all these things that uh, are hidden in plain sight. Um, and it's all a sham, man. America is really AmeriCorps. It's a company. It's not even a country at this point. You know, um, I mean, look at how many COVID deaths. What, 500-something thousand? Canada might only have 30 or 40,000. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's a big difference how this country is run compared to other countries around the world that are, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, on that same level as the United States as far as with the economy and things of that nature. We're just a greedy fucking nation. Um, and that's, and there, hold on, and therein lies the problem. We're greedy. And we're all yeah. culpable, to be honest with you. You know, we're, we're all, oh, you know, you don't hate the player, hate the gang. Don't be yeah. mad that this <laughs> person made that much money, you know. And there's nothing wrong with you becoming wealthy because this is what? a capitalistic society. And, yep. and capitalism is like monopoly. Those with the most chips win. Right? So however you got there, it don't matter. And under everybody's breath is what I've seen evolve over time. Your morals, your integrity, your um, way of, you know, looking at things Equal affair don't even count no more, or you're sucky if you go be soft like that. Um, where we yeah. go from here, I don't know. It's it's almost like a, uh, you know, and plus social media plays a huge role in it. You got a like huge role, a huge grown role. men and women who care more about showing out for other grown men and women than they do for actually improving their own situations or helping to improve the situations of others. You know. Um, it's a it's a sick world we're living in right now, you know. And and I I worry about our kids, our grandkids, you know, the future, man. What are they going to inherit if if we keep fucking up, you know? And uh, and I'm glad you shame. said the fucking up part. I'm glad you said the fucking up part because, like I said, we have a lot of blame. We have a lot of blame. Um, you know, we got black and brown people you know, getting knees on their neck, shot because somebody talking about they fear for their life. And we see another video with some white people in it and nothing happens. The point being yeah. is this, bro. This is the point being. We are divided society right now. We are divided. Oh, yeah. Oldest trick in the book, know, divide and conquer. Yep, that part. That part is what I'm saying. It works. Like, when you don't have a game plan, just jumble, mess everything up. If we're playing a board of chess, or we're on the board, a chess board, me and you are playing, and then I'm about to, you know, be checkmated. All of a sudden, I just knock all the chips off the board and then say, you made me do it. Yeah. Because you were too politically correct. And then people start believing it. 
That's what it didn't happen. Oh yeah, yeah, man. It's it's a uh, definitely uh, um, a very very crazy situation. Um, and you know, you would think over time it would get better, uh, but it, it doesn't. I see in other countries though, you know, and I talk to people around the globe. Um, you know, places like, look at Japan, for example. They might have, like, uh, you know, just a small handful of homicides a year where we have more homicides than the entire world combined, it seems. it's um, Well, because of the gun lobby and because of the gun lobby that is so strong. I mean, the person that went and killed those people, what was that, FedEx or something the other day? Yeah, Indianapolis. What do you need yes. that type of gun for? That That's not to protect your house. That's not to go hunting with. So a lot of the stuff we're doing is just disingenuous, period, okay? It's full of shit. You're full of shit, okay? And now everything is tribal. You got people that don't want to wear masks. I don't know what's going to happen with all of this. The vaccine talking about now we might have to get one every year, like, you know, a flu vaccine. You know, it's it's a work in progress, but everything is being taken advantage of where it's holes in it or they're not sure. Yeah. It's just a mess. I couldn't have said it better. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and the whole mask thing, I, I have people tell me, well, I can't breathe. And, and I tell them, my mom, you know, she has COPD, and when she was getting her chemotherapy, she'd have to wear a mask for five hours. No complaints out of her at all. None at all. So don't give me that shit. You know, we got, nobody wants to wear Hold on, let me interject right now. With those ones, those little cute ones where you matching your clothes, I couldn't breathe in them with my old ass. I'm about to be 60 next year. But when I went and got those regular ones like the doctors have, I could breathe fine. The, yeah. the, the point I'm making is anything that my side is like teams. I'm a 49er, you know what I'm saying, Warriors, Giants fan, right? It's tribalism like that, right? Yeah. I don't care what happens. I want my team to beat your team is where we are. Yeah, that's it, yeah, 100%. And every which way you look, too, it's like that. Um, and it, it should be unity. I mean, that's that's the thing. If there was global unity, um, especially right here in America, if, if we can just get unified here, you know, we we can maybe reverse things. But um, we're never going to reverse things if we're we're all fighting each other, and uh, you know that that's what hip hop did though. It really brought a lot of people together, um, you know. And you have right now, and I know you remember this well. Um, a lot of people, you know, they're getting censored. Um, they went after Louis Farrakhan. They went after uh, a bunch of people. You know, take their Twitter accounts or whatever. They got they got Trump, thankfully. Uh, I'm glad I'm not going to complain about them getting him, but right. back in the day, you know, they were taking, you know, uh, uh, straight out of Compton records, Ice T records, and breaking them and smashing them, and, you know. And those are, are the same people today that are complaining about all the cancel culture. I mean, it's there's so much going on, Doug. We need like 15 hours, <laughs> you know. Exactly. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know. But um, but I definitely um. You know, I um, want to talk about, you know, your career and, and uh, the wonderful things you've done to contribute to the preservation of hip-hop over the years. Um, 
Well, first actually, and still to this day, still to this day. Um, still to this day, exactly. I'm just looking from the sideline. Um, I, I hear a lot of people doing my era, probably your era of music, to me, like around the early 2000s, I already knew it was about to be controlled. You know, is this meeting out there in Palm Springs? A lot of people have heard about. And once they lost that Napster case, right, um, and then they were able to turn payola, which was a federal crime, into a marketing fee, it was a wrap. Oh, yeah. It was a wrap. And that's why you hear the same songs over and over. Um, we have a lot of, as the youngsters would say, that's why I can't even stand. That's why I can't stand old heads. They're always talking about blah blah this, blah blah that. Um, they have a point, but they don't have a point at the same time. And I'm, what I mean by that is, um, you can't go backwards in the culture. So, whatever that stuff, some of them people and youngsters are doing, they shouldn't call it hip hop. They all call themselves rock stars, so they should call it rock whatever. You know some what I'm saying? Genre. Yeah. yeah, some other genre. You know, carve your own lane. Uh, I'm not one to be beefing with my grandkids, in other words. Right? <laughs> if that's something they like, you know, let them do them. Like we did us. It was like when we came, right? R&B was like that's crud music. What is it? I mean, it's not even songs. It's not this. It's not that, right? So if we don't see out of both sides of our eyes, we're tripping. To even be going back and forth with some of them youngsters, like I hear people say, you're tripping because that's not them. What I think hip-hop need to say, and I'm going to say it being a, a member of senior a senior advisor in the Universal Hip Hop Museum, call it something else. That's all you got to do. And then y'all have your own language. But don't call that hip hop. Yeah, I agree because 100%. Hip hop has structure. That's all we're saying. And you do not get to come with them kindergarten lyrics. You got to keep expanding the culture that hip hop calls hip hop. It's it's rules to the game. No, there's elements. I mean, you can't yes, get rid of the DJ. Right. You know, you can't right. get rid of the art. You can't get rid of the, you know, uh, the core, uh, um, you know, like I said, elements of hip-hop. I And we've said that on this show so many times, too. Uh, you know, give it its own lane, you know, and um, but just don't call it rap. And maybe there wouldn't be so much confrontation. But you know what they also promote, Doug? In the uh, music industry, these bigger platforms, I've noticed that they're good at doing this. They promote ageism. They try to put a cap limit on uh, uh, what's dope based on the age of an artist, and I think that's wrong, too. You know, um, there should be no age limit. No other genre of music. I mean, Willie Nelson's 87 still doing his thing. You know. uh, Well, that's that's our fault, too. Hold on, hold hold on. That's what we sold each other out at. Okay. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to give you great examples, right? Uh, right around 50 Cent did an excellent interview. Guess Jimmy Iovine, Dr. Dre Nim, 
gave them heads up that this thing is not going to be the same. They got heads up, okay? When you had YouTube coming, remember, they was about to come with Spotify, and Spotify was basically the music industry with the tech industry, right? And we don't know how much people make really off these so-called likes and views. You understand what I'm saying? It's it's all, what is this? And the point that I'm making is, okay, let's just go with all when, when artists are at their hottest, right? They're fine with the way they're doing it because they're getting the radio play, right? You have people like Dr. Dre who put out Compton doing when the Straight Outta Compton movie came out. He didn't do none of that radio play because Dre knew better. But you didn't hear nothing about that album. Crickets, right? Oh. Only somebody who's going around that I'm noticing is Beyonce. Jay-Z didn't even go around it with that little cartoonish album he had. He didn't even go around it. If you don't pay that marketing fee, they're not playing your stuff on radio. Ain't going to happen. I see that all the time, Paola. Um, people put it right in their posts. No, you know, it's a marketing uh, fee now. It's a marketing fee now. It's not payola no more. It's not illegal. It used to be illegal. It's not illegal. That's why you have iHeart. The yeah. They just changed the name. From that meeting I'm telling you about in Palm Springs, at first all of the top executives, radio executives at the music companies, agreed they were not going to pay that marketing fee. Sad to say, a guy helped bring into this game, Lionel Reitenauer, agreed with everybody, went back to Atlanta, paid the marketing fee. And then you, he let the toothpaste out of the tube, the genie out of the bottle. And it was no going back. And that's when then you saw iHeart, Clear Channel, and CBS Radio started going around, not just America, because they didn't want to make it look like they were targeting hip-hop, but they were, right? Uh, buying up all the radio stations. Monopolizing. Doing the Vince McMahon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And in America, you can't do monopolies. It's called oligopies. You can do an oligopy, right? But what we're starting to find, because I, 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 um, I watch this type of stuff, right? A lot of those stations didn't last. Because you can't have every station playing the same music. You know, you'll have country stations when I'm traveling from Los Angeles to the Bay Area to hang out in the Bay, right? And in Central California, you used to have all those high iHeart stations, but a lot of them, I mean, a few of them were sold lately because you can't have the same stations playing the same stuff, especially if you don't have that that power that um, would they wattage that you can reach, you know what I'm saying? That ain't going to work. It's a complete takeover. Um, right. And they're they're only catering to the uh, people that have, you know, the 150 million view count. Um, <clears throat> back in the day, they used to look for talent. You know, if you, if you had a, a talented MC. And he was making a little bit of buzz on the streets, you know. Um, chances are he would probably get discovered if he if he ran into the right people. But now, it's almost like um, you know you already have to get that huge buzz before they even look at you. 
you already basically they want to take all the followers you already have and use it to their advantage. You know, right. you but, did but, all the work but, for them. But, but no, we we're culpable too. We gave. Remember us? Don't believe the hype. Doing yeah. our era, right? If you came out on radio before you made it in whatever section of the country you were in. That's when program directors and music directors were saying, oh, I'm going to give this a shot. You see what I'm saying? And people started in their own different regions, right? Those days are really over. What they will do to try to play like they still with that, they'll do that new at two out here. You know what I'm saying? But they're not really going to play you. They're going to show that they know who you are. They're going to give you some love because a lot of people from these different areas around the country started pulling up on those DJs at those stations. And, like, why you ain't playing out, you know what I'm saying? But what a lot of people don't know, they have no control over that. A lot of those ads and what they're going to play comes from the corporate office. They give them the playlist. So basically, music directors and uh, program directors, that shit don't mean nothing no more. Oh, somebody above with a yeah. bigger agenda. You know. Right. That's, uh, that's deep stuff, you know. Um, and those listening, I hope, uh, you know, those inspiring artists listening, I hope you're taking notes because, uh, you know, there's a lot of traps that you could fall into within this industry. And... Uh, you know, you've been fortunate enough, Doug, to uh, be around some of the, you know, the biggest stars that have ever done it. And you promoted some of the biggest records that ever came out. Um, how did you get your start, man? When did you uh, first start promoting? What was the first record you promoted? Um, Giorgio's um, Sex Appeal. Um, Giorgio's a person I grew up with, we were childhood friends, um, you know, grew up together, you know what I'm saying, as they would say, we was Sam, but well, he was three years younger than me, but he was like my young homeboy, me, him, and Keith, and our little crew, but it was always just me, him, and Keith, and rest in peace to my best friend, Keith, he died years, late 80s, um, long story short, um, Giorgio first had a deal with, um, we, we met Prince and them at um, Carlos and Charlie's. It used to be this big um, club in Hollywood back in the 80s. And um, one day, me and Giorgio was in there, and Prince and his whole entourage come in. And and we was, we was already in the uh, VIP section, and I just ended up, you know, slide next to Mark Brown, which was Prince bass player, Brown Mark, which was whatever you want to call it, right? And um, we were talking, and he, you know, me and him got to just, you know, chopping it up, and, you know, the moment became real cool. And then all of a sudden, he was like, who's your friend? I said, it's Georgia. He said, do he sing? I said, yeah, he sing. You know what I'm saying? I was putting extras on it. That being said, you know, I said, Georgia, come on over here, right? So... Bought a round of Long Island iced teas, and at the end of that night, they were working on the Raspberry Beret album. Prince, I call it the Raspberry Beret album. I'm not sure what the name of it is. Raspberry Beret, you know, kind of fine in second-hand store. That album at Sunset Sounds. 
So they asked us what we were doing um, after the club. Um, she was like, we don't know yet. And uh, they said, y'all should come down to the studio. We went down to the studio, speed the story up, go down there. We hung out, and they, you know, kept inviting us. Prince was, um, at that time, was um, leasing Madonna's house up in the Hollywood Hills, right? So we would just start hanging out with him. And they, uh, Mark Brown ended up signing Giorgio to Paisley Park. Giorgio goes to Minneapolis, him and Prince are bumping heads because of the females. You know how that worked, right? Came home, and he was all dejected. And, and they had basically finished an album. And it was this one song on the, that album, and I got to keep the butt, you know me, right? Uh, called Dangerous. That was dope. And I said, dude, you should redo that song, man. He called it something else, and that's what he did. He, he went to this uh, studio in the Valley, uh, engineer Cliff Zellman, and, you know, changed it just a little tiny bit. And it was dangerous. It was turned into, it was called Dangerous, and then he just flipped it to Sex Appeal, and the rest was history. And then he got the big contract with um with Motown, and you know we got that press that McCulver. That's how I became enamored and you know knowing about all the stuff that was happening at McCulver because while he was in Minnesota, uh, his wife, which was his girlfriend at the time, Kelly Mentor, she stayed on Afton in El Centro, in El Centro in in Santa Monica. That's where McCulver was. So when I would go to their house, I would always see the McCola records, right? So when he came back, I was like, man, it's this place down the street. You know, we can just go get some stuff pressed. So let's, you know, flip the song. Let's go get it pressed and let's go promote it. So from that point forward, his cousin, his cousin, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, okay, it was Lionel and Jeff. Right, Jeff is his Jeff House is his cousin. Lionel was my fraternity brother. I'm a Sigma, Phi Beta Sigma fraternity. Lionel pledged at San Francisco State. I'm at San Jose State. Lionel was on the charter line there, so we was boys, right? So when it was time for us to promote the record, when the record first finished, right, we go. Do okay. The record was done on like a Tuesday. That weekend, we fly to New York. Myself. Kelly, his wife, you know, uh, with girlfriend at that time. We fly to New York. We stand in Lower Manhattan and, and um, what is that, uh, in Tribeca, uh, Robert De Niro era. That was the worst. It was cold. It was freezing. And they had all them garbage bags and rats looked like cats. And we went to, uh, <laughs> yeah. we went to BLS and KISS. Those were the stations at that time, BLS and KISS. And I just talked our way into the station. I don't know what I did. It was in long coats, freezing like a motherfucker, right? And we go into BLS first. Go up there, let us in. Giorgio in there looking mysterious because he, you know, he looked like he could be Prince's brother, you know. And um, they played a record, and they played it right then and there. And then they had him come on live and played it live, right? And as we leaving. Uh, we got a radio, right? And they plan it as we leave. We're on our way to KISS now. We go to KISS, the same thing happened. They played a record right then and there in New York. 
So we come back to um, California, go to the Bay Area, the same thing happened. Uh, KSOL, KDIA, KPOO, I forget what else. Cameo wasn't cracking up there yet, right? Do the same thing out here, KGLA. And matter of fact, Power 106, guess what? That was the first week the radio Power 106 started out here. Get it on uh, Power 106 with Josefa, Selena, which is Coolio's wife, but they wasn't married then, did no cool yet, but they played it. 99-1 played it. We got it played out there in um, uh, Ox, Oxnard, 99-1. We went way out to, um, which is known now as the Coachella, Coachella Valley, where we used to call it Palm Springs. Got it played out there, and record just blew up. Motown wow. ends up giving him like this seven million dollar deal. Seven million dollar Russ Regan signed it via Jerry Heller and Maury Alexander. And um, you know, we had a team at that time, then Jonathan Clark, uh, Frankie Ross, you know what I'm saying, Alvin, and then just our team of people. So we had a team. He he, he had a he had a team. And, you know, Soul Train, all the stuff he was doing, all that stuff. Sex Appeal was pretty big, right? Long story short, he get the money, and he didn't really give me the money he claimed he was going to give me when the thing blew up. And I just had a, my first child, my oldest daughter now, uh, Erica. So I wasn't with that. I mean, that, that I was so mad. I was so mad. Let me just leave it like that. I was so mad, so... I, I wasn't doing that. I, ain't nobody pimping me. So one day um, I used to hang out with the Bards a lot before all this was happening when Georgia was in um, Minnesota with Prince and them. So that day, you know, I was mad and know what I was going to do. So I, I said to myself, I called Dale, L.D. Bards, told him I'm going to come up and hang out with him. But as I'm on the 101 freeway, right, I'm in Hollywood, passes downtown, now I'm in Hollywood, and I see the Gower exit. And then I said, the Gower exit, oh, get off. Go down to McCola and see if I could get a job, because I had to get a job. There wasn't no more dragging my, my wife. You know, she you know she putting in all the work, and, and I'm not bringing no money in, right? Um, and I just asked for a job. And I said, go in there. And everybody there was like, Doug, what are you doing here? You must be rich now, and this, that, and the other. And Don comes out because he, he didn't know what all the yelling and screaming was about. He was like, Doug, good to see. What are you doing here? I said, Don, I need to talk to you, man. So Don said, come on back into the office. He was a chain smoker, dude, right? He had a cigarette in his hand. Go back in the office. I said, man. Uh, he said, so what's it? you got to be very proud of yourselves, right? Don, I need a job, man. He didn't really pay us no money, man. I got a kid now. We had just bought a house, and I said, I got to get a job. I, I said, can I promote the records here at McCullough? That's what happened. He said, well, of course you can have a job. He didn't pay you. You're the one that made it happen. Don, I go, you're the one that fucking made it happen. I didn't even pay you. I said, man, I don't know, man, but I, I, I got to do something. I mean, can't be coming up with no more excuses. You know, my wife, you know, she's doing the best she can. You know, she bringing in all the money, really. I need a job. So he said, of course. He said, uh, go in the back where all of their records was, right? 
and pick out the records I want to promote. So I go back there. I see um, L.A. Dream Team. I pick that. I see the Wrecking Crew. I pick the Juice album. uh, um, Unknown. To me, Unknown had the dopest label ever. Techno Hop, horrible name, dopest label ever, though. He had everybody on there. He did Battery Brain. You know, he had MC8 in there. He had Ice-T. He had Compton's Most Wanted. Mixed Master yeah. Spade. Todd Chill. Chill. But that, that was a Compton's Most Wanted. You see what I'm saying? And all that shit he had was dope-ass and uh, so I grabbed Shit, all of his stuff, right? Right, that's what I'm saying. And then I saw Hammer. He had this record, MC Hammer. He had a record called um, Stupid Death Yell or, yeah, Stupid Death Yell or something like that. And um, on the other side was Ringham. So I picked MC Hammer. I knew, kind of was hearing about him from the Bay Area. Um, and I was just scooping up. Of course, I picked up all that Egyptian lover stuff. Rodney Owen, Joe Cooley, um, basically uh, TNT. That's how I met Adrian Gregory, Digital Underground, which later he would be hooking me up with Tupac. You know what I'm saying? I picked the Underwater Rhymes. I didn't know him from Adam, but I love the record Underwater Rhymes. I picked that. And, you know, I just picked some of the stuff that, oh, yeah, I picked the We Want Some Pussy, Two Live Crew, um, we want some food. I put that, uh, and 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 I'm looking at the stack of records, right? I'm like, shit, he ain't gonna pay me for all this. So I just took him that to his office. I said, um, yeah, I could I could do this one, this stuff right here. And then he counted them. He said, um, this is my uh, deal, Doug. I need you to promote it three months, and I'll give you um, twenty five hundred. It was twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars a month per record. So now, mind you, I got a stack of fucking records, right? Mm. And I'm doing the math in my head, right? That's a lot of money. So he ended up writing me a check for like thirty, forty some thousand dollars wow. that day. And it was much needed at and that I time too. Oh my God, did I need it? So yeah. I had to, I had the blue Suzuki. Samurai at this time, right? So I took as much of it as I could of everybody's stuff, you know, laid that back seat down, you know, and it was just filled to the rim. And I told him I'm going to come get more tomorrow. He said, no, that's cool. That's cool, Doug. But as, as I'm going home, I'm passing that shit out. I'm passing that records out. You know what I'm saying? And the rest is history, man. Um, before I even went all the way home, I, I went everywhere except out to Palm Springs because it was getting late, right? And just dropping them off to people that I took all that Georgia stuff to, right? And and that's what happened. So I uh, get up that next morning, drive out to Palm Springs, and then I made my way back down to the 15, then I crossed all the way over to, like, the beach cities like I used to do. You know, I started in Irvine and came all the way down all the way out to Zuma, Zuma Beach, right? And I was just eating it up. I was tearing shit up. I was tearing shit up. I was mad at that motherfucker, first of all. I was going to show this motherfucking nigga you fucked up. And before you know it, 
all the records I had started blowing up even more. They was a lot of them was already large, so I'm not gonna, you know, I can't even sit here in front and talk about it. I did something to really help Egyptian Love. Egyptian Love was large when I was in college. You know what I'm saying? That was just I call servicing. And but with that other stuff, it was just blowing up. And I stayed on people's wigs on their heels. I was all go to all the Roger Clayton stores, all of the swap meets. You know, Rage Records, uh, Mid City Records, out here, Calvin, out there in Long Beach, the Grover in San Bernardino, um, um, and all AMC in San Bernardino. We had Tommy out in Riverside. We had my man off Heacock in, um, where is that? Um, what is that? Um, I forget the name of but Heacock. Near Riverside, but it's the other side. They call it something else. It became famous at that place. Um, Marino Valley. Marino Valley. That's a, my bad. Um, and those were the stores. And, and then I would go hang out with the surfers and, you know, kick it with them and leave some in a, uh, 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 surfboard shops and the skateboard shops. And I, I was just doing, like, shit that people wouldn't even think to do. And that, that's innovation right there, you know. Um, I mean, that's a uh, that's setting a, a precedent for others to follow when you do innovative stuff like that. Um, what were your first impressions of Jerry Heller? Um, I heard all what everybody else was saying. He's a crook. He's a this. He's a that. But Jerry and me got along very well. Um, Jerry Heller. You know, I was mad at everybody. Jerry Heller and Maury Alexander did that deal with Russ Regan because Russ Regan was their homie, and he was the president of Motown, right? So I was on some everybody killer shit at first. Jonathan, all of them, felt betrayed by everybody. Alvin, every fucking body. Giorgio, everybody. I was on some fuck them all shit. I'm going to get them, right? But Jerry didn't know I didn't get paid either. Right? And uh, even Maury didn't know. Maury Alexander, rest in peace. Jerry Heller, rest in peace. They didn't know I didn't get paid either. They couldn't fucking believe it. Russ Regan, rest in peace, uh, didn't know I didn't get paid. So they all kicked in when I saw them. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Um, they, they gave me money. And um, Jerry said, wow, how would he not pay you? And... um and Jerry saw an opening. So Jerry kicked me down nicely, right? So, and then a lot of the groups that I just named to you, right, they were managing them. them. Him and Maury was managing most, mainly all the acts at McCola. It was the perfect cherry-picking spot if you look at it in basketball terms, right? When they were just sitting under a rim, you let the record work itself. You don't put a dime into it, Right? And if it blow up, then you go do something with it. That's what they would do. Jerry really would call me, and I'm like, wow, why is this dude always fucking calling me? Um, and then one day he calls me, and he said, hey, Doug, I need your help. I said, what's up, Jerry? He said, I need you to come down to McCola in the morning. I said, yeah, Jerry, you know I don't go in the morning and fight that traffic because that's when I was married. My my kids were little, tiny girls. Um, he said, I need your help, Doug. 
I said, okay, what time? He said, 10 o'clock. I said, okay. So I go that day. I get there. I just got it over with. I get there like around um, quarter to nine. So I'm like an hour and 15 minutes early. Now, mind you, I already got an office down there now. I got an office. So I'm in the office listening to stuff, new stuff that came out, talking to Jim Takeda to see what records are new, you know, because I'd be, after a while, I started getting really busy. Came in the office when I wanted to. Uh, Don McMillan loved it that way because he knew he was like, wow. He was like, man, since you've been really helping with this stuff, sales went all the way up. And um, so I'm in my office. I go out on the side. I'm kind of getting bored because I got there really early. Smoked cigarette. I was holding a pack of Newports. And I uh, smoked a cigarette up against the wall with my right foot up against the wall. You know what I'm saying? Smoking, blah. And um, all of a sudden, I see somebody. I, now, mind you, at this point, I got a blue Suzuki Samurai with a soft white top. Then I see somebody pull up on the south side of Santa Monica and El Centro in this reddish hard top. And um wasn't paying it no mind until they got out. I get out the driver's side. That's going to be easy. Other guy get out the passenger side, that's going to be ran, right? I never met him, though, yet, right? And I said to myself, hmm, I think these are the people he's talking about we're supposed to meet with. So I put the cigarette, threw the cigarette on the ground. Yes, I sure did, later. Um, and went back in the side door. And then um, I said to Jerry, I, I think they're here. He said, how do you know they're here? You never met them. I said, you told me they, they um, some rappers and, you know, these look like some L.A. rappers, and they look like gang members. And um, he started laughing. Don McMillan started laughing. And um, so I said, it's Jim. Because I could tell, Easy, Easy just had something about him. He had this aura about him. He'd get out with the little brick phone. thing he had on was clean. You know, he had the white T-shirts, some jeans, starch tight. Um, I'm not sure. I think he had on Converse, some blue Converse. Had a little chain on. Jerry Curl was cracking when nothing dripping on the T-shirt. He just looked at Fly. He had a Fly-ass watch on with this little gold thing round by the watch. Um, and Jerry comes out of Don McMillan's office. Don McMillan comes out, and um, it was him, right? So he just said, can we talk somewhere? And then uh, um, Jerry said, Don, let, let me use your office. And um, Don McMillan said, sure. So we go back thinking that him and Ren was going to come into the meeting. Ren made a beeline left, right, or center, but he never, he, he didn't come in. So we go in there with Easy, and this is the first physical meeting Jerry had with Easy. They were talking over the phone via Lonzo. You know, what you heard the story about the 750 bucks. And like Lonzo said, it was some money that um, he owed him for studio time anyway. He was going to give him his money. He hooked him up with him. So it wasn't to hook the meeting up. It was he owed him that money because, remember, he just recording a lot of this stuff at Lonzo's studio, as you saw in the Straight Outta Compton movie. Now, we sat there for like damn near four hours listening to his plan and it was making a lot of sense, right? And I'm getting pumped up. So then as it's winding down, 
at the meeting winding down, I said, um, he said he wanted to play it. And I said, hey, I don't listen to music in front of people. I listen to it when on my own time because I don't want you sitting up here wanting me to, you know, bob my neck and do all that other nonsense and making you feel good. I need to listen to it in my private space. And I told him what I do. Because at this time, my name is really buzzing, right? So I had been going on and off with these meetings at Capitol Records. So I was up there meeting with Dwayne Edwards and, you know, trying to put a deal together for MWALK, the group I had called MWALK Productions and MWALK in the Union, right? Um, so I come out of the meeting, do what I always did, smoke a little weed, three puffs of weed, then I jump on that um, the 101 and head home after the traffic died. Did that, and that's when I popped the tape in and heard um, Eight Ball Junkie and lost my goddamn mind. Yeah, that, uh, had there been something so different, I mean, you heard the Ice T records already. But yeah, yeah. That, Six in the that, morning was something, yeah. that was something that was just. It was something raw. I never heard before. It yeah. was raw, but the production was real. Ridiculously. <laughs> yeah. You gotta remember, when I first got here, I was around actual actual musicians. So I'm around the bars and all the you know, thanks to Georgia. Now, really give Georgia his credit now because if it wasn't for Georgia, I wouldn't have met none of these people. First week I was in Los Angeles, I was at Michael Jackson's name house on Havenhurst, taking James D. Barge home. Because when he used to tell me this stuff when I was in college and he had moved out to Los Angeles, he left the Bay Area, I thought he was lying. He wasn't lying. But the production on that NWA, and I was like, who did this? He said, Dr. Dre. I said, Dr. Dre, I thought he was with the record crew. Then Easy started laughing under his breath, right? When after I call, oh, look, Let me back the story up. Okay, so I'm listening to it. I get home, I'm, I done lost my fucking mind for this music, right? And he, he, he had already paid me. At McCoy, he said, you're going to like it. I said, what if I don't like it? He said, you're going to like it. He gave me like $4,500, right, to promote it. And um, reached in the side, gave me the money. And um, I got home. He had, he had gave me his pager number, his home number, and his cell phone number. Called his cell phone. He picked up, and I said, "Oh my God!" He started laughing with that easy laugh. And yeah, I'm gonna come up with this shit. God, then I asked him, "Who did the production?" And then um, he said, "Dr. Dre." I said, "Dr. Dre's with the record. How do you do this?" He said, "Not no more." And he started laughing. And from that point on, man, I, I matter of fact, that uh, next day. I went back to McCola early in the morning. I gave a fuck about that traffic, right? To grab all of the shit that he had. It was, um, and when I went back to it, that was the day they was doing that picture in the back, in that alley that you see on that first, you know what I'm saying, EP? Oh, the um, NWA in the Posse. Boys in the Hood. Yeah, NWA Posse, yep. Yep. And I grabbed all the white labels, packed that fucking 
car up. I even had it in the passenger side of that Suzuki of mine to the top. And it was on and cracking. And Easy started seeing I was just as crazy as him. He's <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> that I didn't have no no rap music or no rap music that was, you know, cursing and stuff like that. Because I had this the cloak of this Dino and uh Summer Girls and Giorgio. You know, Dino Summer Girls and Giorgio Sex Appeal and you know, so I had already had a whole totally bunch of different direction. Yeah. Yeah. But back then <laughs> DJs and club owners didn't want you bringing no rap records in their club. Hmm. And I was lying my mother. Early days where they were I mean, yep. hip hop was breaking through, you know, obviously, but still being rejected by a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, it was rejected by a whole lot of people. Not just by a lot of people, just a whole lot of people. And you got to remember, at this time, I'm staying out in Slash uh, Fontana, uh, Rancho Cucamonga, because I'm staying right there on Citrus, right? And at first, I'm um, I'm at, when we was doing the Georgia stuff, I'm staying in Upland, okay, on Foothill. This fly-ass um, apartment, you know, fly-ass one. This, this, that's the first place I've ever seen that had a gym and a trainer. You know what I'm saying? So it was just, you know, so I went to all those clubs. I still I always go hit Pomona, you know what I'm saying? All of those because I, when, when I was staying there, I used to always be in Pomona, you know. Even uh, Cocaine said in one of his interviews, myself, Scotty B, and, of course, the king, the one who started street promotion, the great Roger Clayton. And no, Steve Rifkin, you didn't you didn't do no you didn't start no street promotion out here. Stop lying. Still love you. You got one of the dopest labels ever, but stop with the street promotion. Stop lying about that. Go tell Drink Champs you lied, Steve. Did, so Steve, I didn't see the Drink Champs interview. Steve Rifkin said that he was doing the. He the created street promotion. Yes, he created street promotion. Ain't none of us created no damn street promotion. Person who put the template together of how it works in rap out here, and they even had it in the Bay Area. If that's the case, my boy Shelly Tatum created street promotion with the flyers and all of this, that, and the other. You had a whole bunch of people up there, you know what I'm saying? But the way when I first came out here, and I, I used to see the way Uncle Jam's army put it down, that was the template of street promotion. I just, what I did, I gave it a name. I gave it the name Street Promotion, and Steve Rifkin turned around and um, uh, copyrighted it and trademarked it because his dad was in the business, Julian Rifkin. Now, let me be clear. I love me some Steve Rifkin. Dopest label, I think, hip-hop label ever. I'm keeping it a buck. I call it Balls and Strikes. That's why I'm calling Balls and Strikes on his ass. He's done no damn Street Promotion. Roger Clayton did. Stop it. Or Scotty D. But I'm going to give it to Roger because Roger was doing it big, big. But don't sleep on Scotty D out here. The homie Scotty D. You heard King T say his name. Scotty D, Keith Cooley. Scotty D, Keith Cooley, and Cold Crush Chris. Scotty D, the man. 
he risking you wasn't even he was a kid when that shit was starting far away from me. I'm the person that gave it the name because after I did the deal with Capitol Records, in order for us to get paid up there at Capitol, we had to give the department a name. We had where well, they can PO it, right? And they say, if you don't have a name, we ain't, we ain't cut no chance. We don't do it like that. This is a corporation, okay? And told them, give me a, a day to think about it. And I was like, street awareness program. That's what um, I got to give it to uh, Scott. Not Scott Foles, but uh, Steph Johnson said, he said, you should call it the street awareness program, Doug. I said, yeah, but that acronym is SAP, and I'm not going to be a SAP. I said, just give me a day, man, to think of it, right? And uh, I went home, smoked some weed. I was like, damn, man, because I knew Lionel and Jeff was going to be mad at me if I ain't had a name, right? So I was like, fuck, fuck. That weed and that motherfucking alcohol kicked in. I said, street awareness team. I kept going street awareness team in my in my office slash study, right? In my house. I said, that's it. And then and then uh, we called it street awareness team, but I that was for the department name. But then I said, when we do the flyers, we're going to just call it Street Teams. That's what happened. So I came up with that name. Yeah, Street Teams. Yeah, we've seen that on many albums over the years. Uh, Contact so-and-so, Street Team, Street Promotions. Um, that's uh, uh, I, I hate it when people don't you know, mention those before. I'm like, you just mentioned people, you know, that were there before you were, or, or there around the same time. Man, you know, nobody I in L.A. fucking with no fucking rocks or fucking clay. If you playing games like that, you sound fucking stupid. Roger Clayton, that, that dude, that dude kept me on my toes. Every time I would get lazy, only time I took off was like Sundays, right? Even on Sundays, I would go do something on the Inland Empire. And then when I would be in there, except during football season, my 49ers, right? Except during football season, I wouldn't do shit on Sunday. But any time that I started slacking, guess what I would say to myself? Motherfucker, I bet you Roger Clayton is some fucking goddamn word. Get your skinny ass up and go do something. People that gave you their fucking money. It's only <laughs> motivation, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you even got these motherfucking people money. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Another one, another one though, too, uh, people uh, forget about, too. He was pushing 45 records back in the day, uh, St. Charles in the Bay. Yeah, St. Charles in the Bay uh, area. Yeah. St. Charles, uh, Charles, E40, uncle, he called me. He He found me. And it was the weirdest shit ever. I just so happened to be in the Bay Area that day, right? Had a cell phone with me. That's what cell phones are now kind of in, right? And I see a number, and it was a Vallejo area call, right? I said, let me, let me answer this. And it was St. Charles. And he said, man, I've heard so many good things about you. I have a number of respect for St. Charles. He said, um, I have a nephew coming out. His name is E-40. And, um, I want you to help me promote this record. I hear you from the Bay Area. Um, I hear you live in L.A. So whenever you get a chance, when you're in the Bay Area, 
uh, I would love if you just come see my operations. He was just real, you know what I'm saying? You know, business, you know, he flowed, you know, he made a lot of sense. He, um, you know, and I said, said, it must be your lucky day, sir. I'm in the Bay Area right now. I'm going to come to you right now. I wasn't doing shit. I was about to just go fuck around downtown, right? And um, so I drove over to um, Vallejo, and I get to his house, and he had one of the, the most incredible, incredible garage, I could say, distribution places I've ever seen in my life. It was all neat and files and and the records, I was like, wow. And he was breaking down stuff for me. They had a product. You know, he um, said, if you're going to take it, I'm going to cut you a check. I already know what your price is. Um, he said, you don't have to really do nothing up here. What I need for you to do is to just do that Southern California area. We're going to take care of up here. He said, just get it out there for me. He said, I, he said I, I only heard only great things about you. So I was shocked. Don't you love I it when shocked. business goes like that? I mean, that's, yeah, I, I was shocked. So he played it for me. I liked it. I liked yeah. it. I liked it a lot. And he was on the base, so he already was, you know, I'm going to fuck with you. And he wasn't whack, nowhere near whack. And the shit was just flying away. He was kicking his like He was saying, it's forty five are running lingo. You know what I'm saying? And uh I was gonna fuck with him. I'm like, no problem, man. And um yeah, Saint Charles is no fucking joke. He was an artist back in the late sixties, I yeah. Yeah, he, uh, his history is, is very rich in the game, uh and then of course we know what happened, uh, uh how he helped no limit, you know, get get their start or really jump All of them, a lot they they was out there in the you Bay know. Area. They started in the Bay Area. A lot of people be fronting on Cali. No limit went yeah. first started in that Bay fucking area. Oh yeah. Yeah, that Bay Area is just, just rich in history. Um you know, you uh you end up uh, uh promoting, you know, uh Easy's records and I remember you told us that uh, you know you went over to death row um, and and you know, worked the chronic and everything. And uh, what was it like when? Yeah, uh, I managed him for letting go three. Huh? I'm sorry. What's that? I'm sorry. What's that, Doug? What, what was you gonna say, Tupac? What? Huh? No, I was just gonna say, um, what was it like when uh, Tupac arrived on the scene? Like, what kind of? I wasn't near was really. There? I wasn't near really. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna tell you. No, I promoted Tupac before he got to death row. Because of Atrium Gregory, okay. Yeah, his, okay, his manager. Yeah. Um, me, 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 and Atrium was very good friends. Um, actually, that was the reason I was about to leave there for when I knew Tupac at time. Um, no disrespect, but you know the East Coast West Coast thing was bubbling too much. I had um, somebody out here from another country didn't want to spook her. Couldn't really tell her a lot back then. You know, I'm not going to say her name in this interview, but people that listen to this interview will know who I'm talking about. Things was just really weird the way we was moving. You know, it got serious. Uh, but, no, Tupac, I did his first three albums. last album I did for Tupac was Me Against the World, which is my favorite Tupac album. Oh, me too. 
produce, produce, hold on, hold on, produce, produce, I'm kind of going to give it away, produced by Soul Shop from Denmark, okay, Mm. but I did the first three albums, so I always tell people the truth of what I did, okay, I wanted no parts of that nonsense, because I knew he was going to come home mad. You know, I'm in the loop of all this hip-hop shit, and I'm hearing all the shit that's allegedly happening, you know what I'm saying, why he's in Clinton and all of that other bullshit, right? I want to know parts of that. And then at that point in time, Suge just, he was out of control. Everybody was scared of him with reason. Um, And after a while, I just got tired of being in bullshit. After a while, every place we started going and then... To be honest with you, that Freaknik, that Freaknik was my last straw in Atlanta in 94. Oh, yeah, with Luke. Uncle Luke, yeah. Uh, no, no, he ain't talking about the Uncle Luke part. I'm not studying that shit. Me, me and Kevin Black went to Miami, went to his fucking club, okay? Strawberries. And oh, gave man. away that bro shit. And that was at the height of the so-called beef, right? And <laughs> Manager DJ said, motherfucking Luke ain't got no goddamn hits. Hell yeah, Death Row coming this bitch and give away the record. And we gave one of them motherfucking fly-ass jackets with the leather sleeves. If you ever hear this interview, you know what I'm talking about, fly-ass Death Row coat, right? We gave away three that night out there at Strawberries in that little strip mall in Miami. And um, what is that, uh, Overtime. What a time in hip hop, though, man! So much going on, so many different things mm-hmm. happening, and, and uh, so many hit records. Well, that time, that, but that time, to be honest with you, was a heartbreaking time too. But I loved, yes. I fell in love with hip hop, and you know, to know that, like when I went and did that, um, that prime time interview after Pac died, killed, that I had to tiptoe around New York. That was horrible. It was just, that's when I started getting heartbroken with a lot of stuff that was happening in hip-hop. And, you know, we fucked up, to be honest with you. West Coast, we, we pressed that shit. At first, was New York, some of the people dissing us and playing us like chickens, yeah. But that's just some rivalry shit, and we just keep coming back, hitting them in their face. That's what I was able to do. With Dr. Dre shit from NWA to the Chronic, you see what I'm saying? To Deep Cover, thank you, um, uh, Superman Clark Kent, thank you, you know what I'm saying? Stretching Bobito, thank you to 45 King, which you know Dre and Snoop didn't like that record, so they had a bunch of that shit in that solar building. I took as much as I could fit in my. Um, at this time, I was bought a. Um, what is that? Uh, Izuzu Trooper, a big ass, you know, SUV truck, and um, you know, I love New York. If it wasn't for like, you know, Cool Keith and Ultra Magnetic in them, they used to look out for me, especially the Flavor Unit, um, you know, and you know, the Bomb Squad, you know what I'm saying? Hank and his brother Keith, and you know. You know, some good people out that way. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think the media blew it up too and helped fuel the fire to it. You know, it, it should have never even went down um, the way it did. Well, a lot of that stuff was it, it was actually let me let me let me put it this way. In, in a minute, I'm going to have to get off this call, but uh, let me put it this way, right? Um, it was seething. The first slight we got when Joe Cooley lost, the so-called loss to um, Cash Money. Joe Cooley beat the shit out of Cash Money in that battle. I went to that battle at the DMC Championship. And then... um. At first, because we, we really only had DJ, so we, we couldn't really argue about nothing with the MCs with the exception of King T. King T, Coolest was the first record that actually just got played in New York with no payola, and they thought he was from New York. Okay? Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was certain things that were just seething. Um, after a while, he wouldn't play nothing of ours. You know, I would go out there early days with the straight out of Compton stuff, right? Some people played it, but they, they wasn't feeling it, right? But what happened was, when Deep Cover hit, which Snoop and Dre did not like, it changed something for us. So when I came with that Chronic record, me and Kevin Black came with the Chronic, right? In the doggy style, we had flipped them. Now they swinging from ours like Tarzan. Now they, they, I would have never thought I would see New York get into game culture, which I feel bad about that to this day. Okay. First, you know, first it was always kind of Bloods in Harlem. That was because of Harry O. Octopus. Good. Thank God he's out of jail. Um, but it was something about that deep cover song because a lot of people in LA wasn't fucking with it. Now, I've seen people on my Instagram talk about well, we were swearing. We ain't talking about just a couple of DJ crews swimming. That was Dr. Dre. That was his first thing. I'm talking about the entirety. I do all of California. You see what I'm saying? And but that was because Ruthless was so powerful, and basically they were starving us out. And once, okay, the, the uh, deep cover loosened it up big time. Then they went back after deep cover, right, and started playing straight out of Compton, right. Then the chronic comes out. And when I would go to fucking New York, all I would fucking hear is West Coast shit. Them three albums. Isn't that crazy? That's a, yeah, that is. Considering uh, now, remember, I, I now, now hold on, hold on. Now remember, I didn't took product out there that had been sitting out there forever. That's what I was gonna say. That yeah. is the best way you promote something. That is the slow leak. Where the roots are going deep in the ground, and that's why it just exploded. The whole culture exploded out there. The crippling in blood, and that is nothing to brag on. I hate that shit, and believe New York did that shit. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, can't believe. Definitely. I can't believe they, you know, 
you know, started gangbanging. A little fuck would want to run into the gangbang. <laughs> Shit ain't no uh, gang. Like hey, but look, man, we got to get up out of here. I, I don't mean to cut. I don't mean to cut you off, but um, well, Doug, I got to get up uh, out of here. Doug, before you go, uh, I got a caller from mm-hmm. France. Could he ask you one quick question? If you of don't care. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry to bother you, Doug. Uh, uh, Sinister, are you there? Yes, yes, sir. Hi, Scott. Hi, uh, Doug Young. Yes, I got. I got a small, small question. Yes. Um, <clears throat> It's about uh, Antioquia and the Parsi uh, was on Michael Records in uh, 1987 at the time with Panic Zone. And you got uh, Rapid Steel on, Flair Fresh Crew, you know, HF Sandor. Steel Fresh Crew, you mean Steel Fresh Crew? Yes, sir, yes, sir. Okay, go ahead, and, uh, I'm sorry. HF Sandor, Panic Zone. And in fact, Michael, uh, did on the way what Hitman Music did with uh, DJ Flash before, mm-hmm. and Mikola uh, did before and, Ruthless. And, and Mikola, you're about, saying Mikola Records? Yeah, can I tell us about just Mikola? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you want to know about Mikola, Sin? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to know... Uh, uh, when it when it started in and uh, when it ended, in fact. What well, McCola? When did it start and when did it yeah, end? McCola. Yeah, yeah, McCola. Okay, McCola. McCola ended because of basically some gangsters came down there and gangstered them. Um, this was right after everybody was leaving anyway. NWA had left, Dream Team had left. Everybody was getting huge deals with the major labels. So it was on its way out anyway. Um, you had a whole bunch of basically um, gangsters, gangsters. That's what happened. You're talking about the Feel of Fresh crew. That was easy label. And the Feel of Fresh crew started because of DOC. That was supposed to be for the guy who he was a, um, he was, he was a, um, what is it, a, a DJ at a radio, major radio station in Texas, in Dallas, Texas. And so Easy didn't want to collide the two names, the Feel of Fresh crew. I mean, um, what was that? Comptown Records. That was on Comptown Records, remember? Um, he didn't want to collide that with Ruthless Records. So he was able to do something without merging the two. Okay, right. Okay. And just last one question. It's about the NWA uh Co-headlined Public Enemy brings the noise to 1988. Uh, what was the relationship with uh, Eazy-E and Chuck D at the time? And it's funny because on the NW and Pussy covers, you can see the big clocks as Flavor Flavor had on the Pussy members. Right. Yes, now, okay, I'm, I'm lost. What do you mean by that question? He wanted to know what, um, what was the relationship yeah. like with uh, Eazy-E and Chuck D? Oh, no, they were super cool. Matter of fact, um, I think the first time Easy met Chuck D was at this club called the Penthouse Lounge that I told him to meet me at. This was an underground hip hop club downtown Los Angeles, and um, basically it was that 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 club was thrown by um, um, what's his name, Michael Ross from Delicious Vinyl. This is when um, you know, the hip hop scene in Los Angeles 
start becoming very popular, right? And the penthouse lounge was one of those um, um, just very popular clubs at that time. So one time, I'm like, easy, now nah, you need to get out of that hood, bro. You need to come to one of these underground clubs with me. Meet me at the penthouse lounge. And I told him the address. It was down there on Sprung Street, downtown uh, L.A. This is when L.A. downtown was just, it looked like night of the living base heads. Cardboard condos, meaning the, the, the tents they were staying in, it was way worse than it even is now. For that, for me to even say that, it's crazy, right? Um, and they they really kicked it off. You know, everybody was in that club that night. Tone Loke, Young MC, just everybody. Um, everybody was there, you know. And then one of the cool things about the underground clubs, that's when New York and fashion and just the entire L.A. scene of hip-hop was was blending. And those were some of the funner times in my life. We had, like, Water the Bush. We had the Penthouse Line. We had a, a Matt Robinson's Clubs. Um, you had a – we had a, just a gang of just really just fly-ass underground clubs in L.A. And that's when L.A. just started blowing up with everybody with hip-hop. All the models would start coming to the, the hip-hop parties because you had all the races in there. You had all the, you know, this is when, like, all the surfer kids from, like, the Malibu and Santa Monica and West Los Angeles area, you know, you had the white boys with the dreadlocks and the white girls with the dreadlocks, and she was just fly as a motherfucker. You have a gang of models in that motherfucking piece, and it was just dope. And I think that was the first night they met. I knew... I knew Chuck D from Matthew McDaniel's interviewing him. I did this documentary called, um, oh, damn, I can't even think, Rhythm Rock Live, Volume 1, me and Matthew McDaniel's. So I met a lot of the people from, like, New York via Matthew McDaniel's in interviews when we would be doing interviews in that first documentary that we did, you know, from Chuck D, Karis One, and all of them. And um, that night, I already knew Chuck D. So I just introduced him, thinking that I think they already kind of met, but not really. That can happen like that sometimes. Because Easy is real standoffish. He's real private. He's real uh, mysterious. That's why it was just something about Easy we all respect, and I still respect to this second, you know. He's the only person, if y'all really listen to if y'all really look at my Instagram, I'll say my favorite boss. I don't call no fucking body no boss, except easy. I'm the boss <laughs> of my shit. Idiot. I'm the boss of my shit. But no, easy was my boss, and I don't care. And I said each and every my favorite boss. Man, that motherfucker. We used to have so much fun laughing. I remember, um, like for instance, uh, when um, you see in the um Straight Outta Compton movie talking about that um shit with the FBI letter, right? It didn't happen like that. The FBI letter was exposed because of his publicist, Phyllis Pollock, which is one of the best in the game. She helped Jay Prince out of his situation when they was trying to set him out out there in Texas by getting Maxine Waters on it. She was down like 10 toes and oak flats with Luke. She, she, me, and, me and Phyllis made a perfect duo with labels. She was crazy as a Betsy bug, and I'm as crazy as a crazy motherfucker. She don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. We gonna come anyway. And she's the one that broke the FBI letter, got it um, 
you know what I'm saying, published on in the Village Voice. Then from there, your MTV Raps hooked it up. I mean, and, and I mean, picked it up, and the rest is history. And then the guy who sent that letter from the FBI ended up getting demoted. And then I think later on fired because he made the group bigger than it is. So what you see in the straight out of Compton, well, that's a lie. Phyllis Pollock did that. Phyllis is good people. I worked with her uh, many times over the years. Uh, you know, with she's crazy as a Betsy bug, like me. She is crazy as a Betsy bug, and you know it, like me. Yeah. But I love me some Phyllis Polly. She don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Doug, I'm so sorry for going over, man. Thank you so much. We had a hell of a great time. Um, before I do get out of here, though, I, I just want to give hey, you Hey, hey, hold on. Let me ask you my guy from Paris. Is my guy from Paris still on the phone? Hold on. Is my guy from Paris still on the phone? Yeah, he's sitting. You there? Yeah. I'm there, yeah. Have you heard of Napoleon Valetian out there? Sorry? About? Have you heard of the rap artist Napoleon Valetian, NDL? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my I boy. Check this out. Hold on. I've been knowing him since he was 14 years old. I'm the one they coached okay. him into. I've been knowing him okay, right. since he was 14 years old. I met his sister, and um, he used to send me his stuff when I was staying in the Melrose area. And when he was 14 years old, and I coached him since, I love him. That dude and did it. I, I'm so proud of him. Napoleon de Lijon, Paris, please, if you ain't up on him, get up on him. <laughs> okay, right. All right, guys, I'm out. I'm out of here, all right? You're the best, Doug. You yeah. take care and be safe, brother. All right, man. Peace. Doug Young, legendary promoter. Uh, man, the stuff he's done over the years has just uh, been amazing. Sin, we were lucky to chop it up with him again. Max interview yeah. uh, that he did was legendary. Um, and Doug, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. yeah man. Uh, Doug, uh, you know, he, he just he was around for all the <clears throat> records. That came out of the uh, 80s that had impact worldwide. I mean, fuck the police is something that resonates with people to this sure. day. Um, so yeah. it was amazing to uh, have him back on the show once again. And uh, we look forward to maybe chopping up with him in the future. Um, but yeah, man, this was a great uh, episode. Let's give him a song, the man. Uh, he said his favorite album. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Sin. No, it was Dope Stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, very, very dope stories. He said his favorite Tupac album was uh, Me Against the World, so this is so many tears, man. We're out of here. Yes, sir. I shall not fear no man but God, so I walk through the valley of death. I before I wait. Please, God, walk Back in elementary, I thrived on misery. Left me alone, I grew up amongst the dime breed. Inside my mind, couldn't find a place to rest. Until I got that dug like tatted on my chest. Tell me, can you feel me? I'm not living in the past, you wanna last. Be the first to blast, remember Cato. No longer with the seats, the seats. Crawl on the sirens, seen them murdered in the streets. Now rest in peace. Is there heaven for a G? Remember me. So many homies in the cemetery shed so many pigs. Uh, I suffered through the years and shed so many tears. 
label me greedy, getting green, but seldom seen. And fuck the world, cause I'm cursed. I'm having visions of leaving here in the hearse. God, can you feel me? Take me away from all the pressure and all the pain. Show me some happiness again. I'm going blind. I spent my time in the cell. Ain't living well. I know my destiny is hell. But did I fail? My life is in denial. And when I die, baptized in the eternal fire, shed so many tears. Lord, I suffer through the years and shed so many tears. Lord, I lost so many tears, they shed so many tears. Now I'm lost and I'm weary, so many tears. I'm suicidal, so don't stand in me. My every move is a calculated step to bring me closer to embrace an early death. Now there's nothing left. There was no mercy on the streets, I couldn't rest. I'm barely standing, about to go to pieces, screaming peace. And though my soul was deleted, I couldn't see it. I had my mind full of demons trying to break free. They planted seeds and they had sparking the flame. Inside my brain like a match, such a dirty game. No memories, just the misery, painting a picture of my enemies, killing me in my sleep. Will I survive till the moan and the see the sun? Please Lord forgive me for my sins, cause here I come. Lord, I suffer through the years and shed so many tears. God, I lost so many tears. And Lord knows I tried. Been a witness to homicide. Since drive-by, taking lives, little kids die. Wonder why as I walk by. Broken hearted as I glance at the chalk line, getting high. This ain't the life for me. I want to change. But ain't no future right for me. I'm stuck in the game. I'm trapped inside a maze. See the tang array influence me. They're getting crazy. Disillusioned lately. I've been really wanting babies. So I can see a part of me that wasn't always shady. Don't trust my lady. Cause she's a product of this poison. I'm hearing noises. Think she's fucking on my boys. Can't take no more. I'm falling to the floor, begging for the Lord to let me into heaven's door. Shed so many tears. Lord, I lost so many tears, and shed so many tears. I lost so many tears, and shed so many tears. 